Last time on When We Were Young, we shared our own stories of watching Nick at Night Block Party Summer and all its classic sitcoms when we were growing up. And we revisited the Mary Tyler Moore Show, as well as the Munsters, the golden era TV shows given new life every Monday on Nick at Night. So listen to episode 80 if you haven't heard that yet. Now in part two, we go through the other days of the programming week, starting with I Love Lucy in Lucy Tuesdays, heading through Bewitched Be Wednesdays, I Dream of Jeannie Thursdays, and Sergeant Joe Fridays that later became Welcome Back Cotter Fridays. Lucille Ball met Desi Arnaz in 1940 while on break from filming a scene in Dorothy Arzner's Dance Girl Dance, sporting a black eye from a fight scene she just filmed with her co-star. When Desi saw her again about an hour later, after she'd changed, he exclaimed, what a hunk of woman, and a power couple was born. (laughs) Are you going to walk us through their entire relationship, Chris? I wish that I could, and I read an entire book on Lucy last night, but I'm not going to. (laughs) That was it. I just dream that someday a man will exclaim that about me. (sighs) What a hunk of woman. Exactly. When I have a black eye, come on. And then a thick Cuban accent, too. Uh, I am there for every single part of this. I Love Lucy premiered on October 15th, 1951, based on Ball's successful radio program, My Favorite Husband. Ball insisted that her real-life husband star opposite her for the television adaptation, though executives wondered if audiences would believe that a woman like Lucy would be married to a thick-accented Cuban. Mm-hmm. To which she uh, replied that she was. And it was believable <laughs> because it was true. I Love Lucy immediately revolutionized the TV industry in many ways. Back in 1951, TV shows were all filmed live in New York and then rebroadcast for the West Coast in a low-quality kinescope, which basically was a film of a film, basically filming it off of the live monitor screen. So pretty bad quality. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, neither did I. I I knew that, that I Love Lucy had done something like that, but when I was actually looking into it, I was like, yeah, that does sound like pretty bad quality. Yeah. And again, when I used to watch super old shows like this as a kid, I'd always wonder why they looked so terrible quality wise, especially compared to black and white films. And that's the exact reason. Huh. Yeah, because Lucy and Desi wanted to film at home in L.A., they demanded to shoot the show on film, which resulted in much better quality that would pave the way for reruns and syndication. CBS and sponsor Philip Morris, America's favorite cigarette, (laughs) balked at the added costs as networks and sponsors often do. So Lucy and Desi took pay cuts in exchange for owning the rights to the series. A lucrative trade, as it turned out. I was about to say that was a very good decision on their part. (laughs) It's truly insane, Chris. I've read about a lot of these things before, and it's still just so wild to me, like how many ways Lucille Ball herself revolutionized the entire production, syndication, and distribution of TV as a whole medium. Every level. 
Yeah, for sure. The show is also an early pioneer of the three camera technique. And Desilu Productions eventually made so much money off the show that it bought RKO Studios. (laughs) I didn't know that. (laughs) That's right. I forgot they fucking bought RKO. The show, as I said, was sponsored by Philip Morris. So there were cigarettes all over the show. You can see many commercials of Lucy and Desi doing little promos. They had little animated Lucy's and Desi's around the show as bumpers constantly smoking. (laughs) How about a good night cigarette, Ricky? Thank you, Lucy. Mmm, nothing but the best, huh? Natch, nothing but Philip Morris. Sure tastes good. And you know something, Lucy? Hmm. When you find a good friend, well, you kind of like to pass it along to your friends. That means you. Have you tried a Philip Morris lately? You'll love them. They're so smooth and mild, and they taste so good. And most important, there's no cigarette hangover when you smoke Philip Morris. That's right. That's what we say. You'll be glad tomorrow. You smoke Philip Morris today. Good night. Lucille Ball did not like Philip Morris cigarettes, and she had to hide her preferred brand, Chesterfield's, in a Philip Morris box because she was yelled at for smoking another brand. (laughs) That's funny. I Love Lucy stars Lucille Ball as Lucy Ricardo, the scheming housewife with a thirst for fame, Desi Arnaz as Ricky Ricardo, her constantly exasperated Cuban band leader husband, William Frawley as their cheapskate landlord, Fred Mertz, and Vivian Vance as Ethel Mertz, Fred's wife and Lucy's partner in crime. It won some Emmys, but not as many as you'd think. Uh, It won Best Situation Comedy twice, with one win for Ball as Best Comedy Actress and one for Vivian Vance. One win? Yeah. Only one? Seriously, like Julia Louis-Dreyfus has like 25 of them. (laughs) Deserved, deserved, but yeah. Yes, but Lucy also deserves 25. (laughs) Yeah. William Frawley lost five times and Desi was never nominated. I mean, appropriate. (laughs) The original show ran from 1951 to 1957 on CBS with 179 half-hour episodes. 13 more hour-long episodes aired from 1957 through 1960. Lucy went on to star in more hit sitcoms based around her lovably scheming persona, The Lucy Show in the 60s with Vivian Vance. Here's Lucy in the late 60s and early 70s, co-starring her real-life children, and the quickly canceled Life with Lucy in 1986. I did not know that there was a Lucy sitcom, like, in our lifetime. Oh, no. Yeah, and it was the original writers, too, but it did not last longer than, like, eight episodes or something. Of course, none of these were as iconic as I Love Lucy. We did watch a couple of the most iconic episodes, but even that leaves out Lucy in a freezer, Lucy doing a mirror routine with Harper Marks, Lucy stomping grapes, Lucy with a loving cup stuck on her head, Lucy dressed as Superman, and all kinds of other (laughs) images that are burned into our brains. Even, you know, I can mention, like, looks that she gives or things that she does, and you'll immediately know. Yes. (laughs) That is known as the spider voice. That's the spider what? voice. <laughs> I thought that was called like the ew, the ew voice. Ooh. The spider voice? Yeah, they referred to it in the script as the spider voice uh, because she had done that voice like in a, a commercial where she was like the spider with Little Miss Muffet on a radio show. <laughs> that's so, hilarious. That's wow. where they got it. Lucy crying is iconic. You can immediately picture her crying. Oh, Ricky. <laughs> that one. <laughs> I just want to do Lucy impressions. Becky? Yeah, honestly, Becky, like, I feel like we're unlocking something here, something you've wanted to express for a while. Mm-hmm. Lucy's mouth open in shock is another uh, iconic 
image. You can, I'm sure you can picture. Mm-hmm. It, it's an image. Ricky had his own tropes. <laughs> Ricky had his own tropes. He had uh, buggy eyes. His eyes bugged out. Oh, come on. Chris, you don't have to. What? You, you don't have to. I, I feel like it's been long enough. We don't have to pretend like Ricky Ricardo was on an equal playing field with Lucy. I mean, he has his own thing. He's got it. I'm not going to discount Desi. Look, Seth, he's no, Desi is not a Darren, you know, oh, foreshadowing. God. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> he's, he's got some, some like Lucy, you got some explaining to do. Like people, like you quote that and you know who it is, you know, I'm going to defend Desi. He's a good singer. Yeah, he has his own comedy things. Like he his his like tirades in Spanish are funny. Yeah. His getting English words wrong is funny, the way he says like dunt and, and things like that. Like I think that there's a lot of comedy in him that wouldn't be here with like most other actors. No, I think if he was a white guy, like a normal white guy, the show wouldn't have been as memorable. And I obviously Lucy is so great but there is something so fascinating and unique about the show because it does star somebody who isn't a white man and it puts such a positive spin on on he's so talented and they're in love and he's got his own funny catchphrases and things that he does that i i think it really really adds to why the show is iconic here here (laughs) we're not accepting this erasure of desi so did you guys like the show <laughs> yes, I continued to like this show. <laughs> we watched, first of all, Lucy does a TV commercial, season one, episode 30. It's hard to say, like, if, if this is the very most iconic one, but I think it is. <laughs> I thought you were going to say it's hard to say Vita Vita Vegemat. Vita Vita Vegemat? Vita Vita Vegemat. Oh, Chris. <laughs> oh, no. You need some more. Might have had a meaty mat. Clearly, <laughs> you don't have enough vegetables or meat or alcohol in your diet. I have a solution for all three. <laughs> How about minerals? Also that. So I did something wrong. I started <laughs> I started research for this podcast with Lucy. And then all I wanted to do uh, was watch Lucy. Of course. Yeah. I didn't want to move on. I wanted to keep watching Lucy episodes. Yeah. Here are my notes for I Love Lucy. <laughs> Her comic timing is unparalleled. She is remarkable. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Clearly, we all know Lucy Lucille Ball is, you know, comedic genius. That's it just is, one of those... She's like, talented. Pure she's comedic... I, I wrote, like, pure comedic genius, like, immediately when I started watching these episodes. Yeah, but I but I think that we... Um, we you know, it's just one of those things like, oh, this person's so famous and they're good at what they do. But when you're actually, like, watching with, like, kind of, like, a critical eye, like, to actually be, like, let's see Mm -hmm. if this holds up today or you know usually when i have watched i love lucy which has been quite a while i'm just watching it but i was actually like watching her performance and she is so insanely good (laughs) yeah that i cannot believe how good she is she is she never breaks and like i think back then they were pretty much filmed live and they're they're all live yeah and there there are moments where desi is like so close to, to cracking up which i think is funny to watch mm-hmm. um, but she's she doesn't crack up at all like she is so serious she, and such she a professional. never breaks she never, never. breaks once <laughs> like once it's the 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 i i can't say it the vita mita vegemin it is vita mita vegemin it is the most perfect sketch at heightening it is a perfect sketch mm-hmm 
and and she is so perfect in it. Like she, I don't know what year she won her Emmy, but it should have been for that scene. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't for this one, but yeah, totally agreed. I mean, I've I've seen a lot of I Love Lucy recently, so none of this was like new to me. Mm. I will even step a little further than you guys and say I think she's the best entertainer ever, <laughs> probably. <laughs> Do you mean the most talented? Is that different than the best? Oh, I, I, mean, I don't know. Like the most iconic, the most like... Yeah, I guess the most talented. Yeah, like just like peerless in what she does. Like I don't think anyone is funnier than she is. You know, there's a lot of comedians and a lot of what they do is verbal. And she's, you know, funny at that. But she's funny, like her face, like her tone of voice. Like she's funny just to look at her. Like a lot like a silent comedian. She was actually friends with Buster Keaton. And he taught her a lot of things about comedy like early on. And I mean, I think you can kind of see it, but she worked very hard on every episode. Like she would come into the read and be kind of, she didn't have this all down. Like this wasn't just natural to her. Obviously the talent of developing it was natural to her, but it wasn't like she would just show up and be this funny. Like she would work on every gag and get it to be this funny. And she just had like a tremendous work ethic. And and it, it's interesting, she wasn't very involved in like the story of the episode. She didn't really care like what the writing was. She would just like get her part and then like she would perfect the gags. And she's like superhuman in like how, how funny she is and how good she is. And this one scene I think is like, if you're going to show anyone like how talented she is, I think this is the scene to do it where it's just, she is giving the same dialogue over and over again, which is not, terribly funny dialogue like it's a commercial and it sounds like a real commercial and yet she's like varying it every time that she does it and you know she's getting drunk as she's drinking this stuff and so she's getting like a little drunker and each time but like it's basically like the same words throughout this whole sketch for probably like 10 minutes and yet it's constantly funny because she's doing just like these little things every moment like every one second of the sketch is funny hello friends I'm your body meat of Benjamin girl. Are you tired, run down, listless? Do you poop out at parties? Are you unpopular? The answer to all your problems is in this little bottle. A uh, little bottle. <laughs> uh, body meat of Benjamin. Body meat of Benjamin contains vitamins, meat, vegetables, and minerals. Uh... Yes, with Vitamina Vegemin, you can spoon your way to hell. All you have to do is take a big tablespoonful after every meal. <laughs> it's so tasty, too. Tastes like candy. Honest. <laughs> She, it's, it's, Chris, you're hitting on like a major thing here, which is the, like, how brilliant a comedic per- performer she is beyond just the lines, um, where she, even just micro expressions that she makes on her face, mm-hmm. like, completely kill in terms of even watching them now, but also kill, like, in the studio audience setting. Um, not to jump around, but 
the tango scene with eggs when like she's Mm -hmm. hoarding eggs inside of her clothing in season six, episode 20. Um, There's a moment where she just folds her arms and stares at Ricky and it's literally one of the funniest like comedy moments I remember seeing. <laughs> like it's 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 just the most simple performance, and it's not even verbal, um, but it's just absolutely funny on its own. Yeah, what's yeah. what's so funny is like the egg smash after their tango dance. Like, first of all, Desi sells it, like his face of the reaction of it. And totally. then she then she's, you know, reveals that she has this egg yolk dripping out of her shirt. And she's, <laughs> you know, the the laughter keeps coming from the audience. So she's just kind of like moving her arms, crossing them over her stomach full of eggs. And she tries to like gather egg yeah. egg parts in her hands to like bail her shirt out. Yeah. <laughs> it's amazing. Like she's not even saying anything. She doesn't have to. It's amazing. Yeah, she's such a physical comedian and she does get credit for that a lot. And yet I don't think that it's quite as much credit as she deserves still. It's not enough. Because she is using her entire body to react to things. Like, you know exactly what her emotional state is in every moment. Because when she's like afraid Ricky's going to be mad at her, she's like, like every inch of her body is like tensed up in like this like fear position. And it's like that with everything she does. It's like, I can't think of anyone, I mean, beyond maybe like Charlie Chaplin, who is able to like convey so much just with like the stance of their body and and the way that they're positioning themselves. And, you know, she obviously had like words, you know, to, to also use as a tool, but she very much could be like a silent comedian. I didn't mean to like undermine or race Ricky Ricardo at all. <laughs> it's just to say that like Lucille Ball was an exceptional performer and comedian and and yeah, it's just it's it's pretty amazing to watch like to just again, just watching this from a critical perspective, looking for the shortcomings, like this was a person who truly excelled in every way. There were two moments from two episodes that actually are very like Desi specific that I want to bring up that that really like touched me. Um, one is from Lucy's Enciente. Is that how you say it? Enceinte. It's French. No, it's not. It is. I already looked it up. It's French. <laughs> I'm guessing it's not Enciente. <laughs> okay. Enceinte. Which means Lucy's pregnant. And she's trying to find the right moment to tell Ricky and, you know, it keeps getting delayed. He gets a note during a show at his club that somebody's pregnant and he wants to sing them, we're having a baby. And he doesn't know who the couple is. And then he finds out in the middle of the song that it's him and Lucy. And his reaction is just so sweet. And maybe it's because wasn't Lucy pregnant in real life? She was, yes. You know, with his child. It was just such a sweet moment. And then the last few minutes of the episode are him and Lucy just like hugging while he's singing. And it just was such a sweet moment in a show that is known for being so so funny that it was funny and so sweet like it really did touch me yeah that's one of the reasons i selected that episode is because it is one of the few that had you know more of an emotional core than a comedy core it's it's a funny episode but it's definitely much more of an emotional heavy hitter which i think had to have been rare you know for this time i don't think any other sitcom would have been able to kind of have this kind of moment the word pregnant was actually not allowed to be used on television at the time and pregnant women couldn't be shown on TV. So this was groundbreaking in that way too. 
they actually thought that they might need to cancel the show because she was pregnant <laughs> until they finally like made them, you know, realize that like, let's just show her on TV. And obviously like what a tragedy it would be if I Love Lucy was canceled yeah. um, midway into season two. This became like such a sensation that they got over a million people like calling them, giving them gifts. Mm. You know, it was like, there was such a PR stunt. I mean, kind of a stunt. I a stunt kind of sounds negative, but it was perfect. And Lucy actually had her baby the same night that this episode aired. Like, oh, it was really? Just, it feels like it was meant to be. <laughs> And then they won their first Emmys for the show, like, uh, 18 days after the birth. So this was kind of like a super high point for the cast. That was a good month for them. (laughs) The other moment I really liked that I thought encapsulated a lot of what the show is, it was the episode Home from Europe, where Lucy tries to sneak a giant wedge of cheese home from Europe, and she pretends it's a baby. What was funny (laughs) is that Desi actually knows very early on, and he's just like, I'm not getting involved in this. And he like goes to the back of the plane, you know, and hijinks ensue. And then at the very end, she had to like get rid of the cheese and she ends up putting it into his band's instruments. (laughs) And when they try to play, it's all gooey, (laughs) which is a very funny reveal. And Desi's reaction, because Lucy is so scared, he's going to be mad. Desi's reaction is like, he just laughs. And he says, being married to you is not easy, but it sure is a lot of fun. And that they're like kissing and the episode ends. And I was like... Yeah, I mean, that's why he stays with her. That's what draws him to this crazy person who gets in all this, like, these hijinks is, like, he really does love her. And and I, I thought it was really nice that the show pointed that out. It's not just like, oh, you infuriate me and you make my life more complicated. Like, he really likes that. And I like that the show pointed that out. But what does she get from him? What does she get from all this? I don't know. I'm, I, I'm sorry. What? As much as I love this series... I don't feel like that's a balanced relationship. I don't feel like the power dynamic there is equal. I feel like Ricky is way too down on Lucy and doesn't fully appreciate her for the genius that she is. Well, that's why I think it's a funny premise of a show because she is the star of the show and she's incredible and yet she's playing somebody with no talent that keeps wanting to be successful. That's why it's funny, I guess, to me, is that she really, in this show, she has no talent, but she's like the funniest person there ever was in real life. That's fair. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's a difference between Lucy, as we know she is, a brilliant performer and comedian, and this Lucy, one of the main things of the show that you see in that episode that we watched, the Lucy does a TV commercial, but it's in many of them, is like Lucy's quest for fame, and she wants it so bad. And that's really kind of like the driving force of the show. And it's so funny because we we do want it for her. Like, even though we know she's not talented and you see her like perform and she's usually pretty bad. Like her singing is bad. <laughs> she's she's messing things up. And yet somehow like we're still so on board with her. And I think that that's so interesting in a show that like really invites chaos. And so I find the show actually mm-hmm. kind of subversive because because, you know, other shows were much more reinforcing these stereotypes. And I think we'll see more of them in the next few shows that we talk about. You know, I was trying to think about why I like this show and why this show doesn't really grate on me as like reinforcing gender stereotypes, even though it does certainly in ways. It's very like men are like this, women are like this. Let's face it, Rick. When it comes to money, there are two kinds of people, the earners and the spenders, or as they are more popularly known, Husbands and wives. <laughs> yeah. Brother, if they had to make the dough, they would think twice before spending it that fast. Yeah. What's so tough about earning a living? Yeah. 
Have you ever done it? No, but I could. Ha! I could, too. Ha! <laughs> Listen, holding down a job is a lot more difficult than lying around the house all day long. Lying around the house? Is that all you think we do? Yeah. Well, now, let's be fair, Rick. Every once in a while, they get up and play canasta. <laughs> who do you think does the housework? And who do you think cooks all the meals? Yeah. Oh, anybody can cook and do the housework. Ha! I'd just like to see you two try it for a week. Okay, we will. We will? Yeah. <laughs> Women are domestic. They do the cleaning and the shopping. The men bring home the paycheck. Like, it, it's constantly, like, reinforcing that idea as you know, pretty much all entertainment did in the early 50s. But the fact that she's never satisfied with that and she is constantly, like, mm-hmm. undermining it, and that's who you identify with. So even though a lot of these things are being reinforced in ways, I feel like we're kind of constantly invited to say, like, uh, no, like, let's shake this up a little bit. And that's, I think, what allows this to be still so much fun to watch, even though our idea of what's acceptable for, like, families has gone so much beyond this. All right, let's try and move on from Lucy Tuesdays. (laughs) It'll be tough. There's a lot more we could say. And now it's time for Bewitched Be Wednesdays. Bewitched. Bewitched is about a man named Darren Stevens who marries a woman named Samantha, whom he later finds out is a witch. Bewitched. (laughs) Was that your pitch to the network? That was it. Can we please just not put in the theme song? Just have that be the introduction for the show. There you go. Bewitched originally aired on ABC on September 17th, 1964. There are eight seasons of the show with 254 episodes. 74 of those were originally in black and white, but were later colorized. And I couldn't find any black and white episodes to watch because I was really looking forward to that, honestly. I did. Oh, you did? Yeah, I couldn't find... They were all colorized. Did it help, Chris? (laughs) Yes. We'll we'll get to that. (laughs) The show starred Elizabeth Montgomery as Samantha Stevens, Agnes Moorhead as Samantha's mother and Dora, Paul Lind as Samantha's uncle Arthur... (laughs) Her muggle husband, Darren, was played by Dick York for the first five seasons and Dick Sargent for the last three. Elizabeth Montgomery was nominated for five Emmy Awards and four Golden Globes for her work. What? More than Lucy? Uh-huh. She didn't win one, but she was nominated five times. In a 1992 interview, Elizabeth Montgomery was asked if the show was actually an allegory about closeted homosexuality. She answered, don't think that didn't enter our minds at the time. Hmm. We talked about it on the set, certainly not in production meetings, but that this was about people not being allowed to be what they really are. And if you think about it, Bewitched is about repression in general and all the frustration and trouble it can cause. 
Elizabeth Montgomery was actually a very outspoken AIDS activist and she promoted gay rights. She was very against the Vietnam War. In June 1992, she was actually the Grand Marshal at the LA Pride Parade with Dick Sargent, the second Darren. That's awesome. So she was actually a very strong ally to the gay community. And I think that's pretty awesome. I didn't know that at all. No, me neither. We watched a few episodes of Bewitched. We watched one with Uncle Arthur where he's introduced. That's uh, Samantha's pranking uncle. He's a warlock. <laughs> That's one way to put it. <laughs> <laughs> now everybody do your best Paul Lind impression. Uncle Arthur. <laughs> <laughs> Doing practical jokes. <laughs> I decline. <laughs> what I know Paul Lind from is uh, he, he was the voice of Templeton the Rat in Charlotte's Web cartoon. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> He was on Hollywood Squares, right? He was really famous for that. He made so much money off of that. He, he became like rich off of Hollywood Squares. Oh, yeah. uh, I wish I could. I wish I could. We watched that one, but we also watched an episode with uh, first Darren and we watched an episode of second Darren because you got to compare and contrast. <laughs> uh, so what do you guys think of watching Bewitched? Let's start with the colorization. Okay. <laughs> Please. Because I started watching a colorized um, episode and it is so garish. It's just, and it's not the show's fault, obviously, but it no. just, the colors are like crayon, like like someone's five-year-old it disorienting. colored it. Chris, it's, it is disorienting. It's really, I could not stand it. I could not it's stand really it. It's really with Endora's costuming. <laughs> yes. With her bright red hair and her purple and green Joker <laughs> outfit that she wears. Yeah, I mean, I, I wrote that down. I was like, is that what she really wore? Like, that outfit doesn't seem real. <laughs> Which it kind of is, but then later you see it in the normal color episode that was actually filmed in color. And it's, it's still bad, but it's toned down yeah, a lot. Yeah, she's not a super villain. <laughs> yeah. So I ended up going back and watching them in black and white because I could not stand the color. And that made it a lot better. And it just, it made a lot more sense, I feel like. For the time that it was, it just like, the story kind of felt like it actually belonged in black and white to me. What's funny is that usually you don't know what episode is going to be rerun at Nick on Nick at Night. I just knew, you know, it's Bewitched Be Wednesdays. Sometimes they would have color colorized versions like later seasons and sometimes they're black and white and if it was colorized version i knew that i didn't have to watch it because i didn't think it would be good because it was most likely it was with new darren yeah so the original darren looks a lot like jim carrey and that was distracting <laughs> Like, I just kept seeing Jim Carrey. Is that just me? That's funny that you say that because I felt like new Darren looked like Joel McHale. <laughs> okay, that's fair. Jim Carrey and Joel McHale, both really good Darren alikes. <laughs> uh, frankly, I found the men on this show just so interchangeable. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> Literally interchangeable. <laughs> and ultimately completely disposable. Like, truly, you could throw them into the garbage can after one use and it would be fine. The women are the only yeah. interesting characters on the show and really only Samantha has a personality of her own. Uh, you won't catch me caring about any Darren. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I prefer old Darren, but it's really the Samantha show. Did you call me? I did. Sit down. I want to talk to you. When? Now. Oh. <laughs> Darren, before you get angry, please be fair. You sailed something down to me, right? It was only fair that I sail a little something back up to you. What I did was not only extremely clever and humorous, it was aerodynamically sound. What you did was witchcraft. 
premeditated and uncalled for, merely to irritate me. Well, when you put it that way, I do feel terribly guilty. But I was just too tired to dash up the stairs again. I have been running you ragged, haven't I? No. Only limp when I hurry. <laughs> I find Elizabeth Montgomery to be very pretty, very likable. <laughs> she is. She's charismatic. She's very charismatic. She's just very modern where I feel like the way that she dresses for the most part and styles herself, like you could pretty much have the exact person on today like her hair it's not like she's donna reed like she mostly wears pants and like sweaters and she's feminine but she's not like revealing anything like genie or she's not like samantha is the mary of this she is yeah and i and i found that really inspiring for a show (laughs) that when you know when did it premiere in 60 something what did I say? 64. Like, I just felt like, oh, she's like a modern woman. And clearly there are some, you know, reinforced gender roles on the show. But I but I actually was surprised how much I really like Samantha. And I think that's what I liked when I was younger. I, I liked Samantha. I liked her powers. I, and I liked Elizabeth Montgomery as an actress. I didn't know that Paul Lind was on this really? show. I only knew him from like Hollywood Squares. And the episode we watched, uh, season two, episode five, The Joker is a Card, was written by Ron Friedman, who was my first screenwriting professor at USC. Oh, cool. I love Paul Lind so much. And it's my thesis that Practical Jokes is a reference to being gay. <laughs> His character, like Uncle Arthur, is always playing practical jokes, but it's always on men. And I think Uncle Arthur is trying to turn Darren gay. (laughs) Is that what you really think? (laughs) It's my thesis. It's just my thesis about (laughs) the episode that we watched. Uh Again, I haven't watched more of the show, so I don't know the canon here. Okay. Well, he's a warlock, so I feel like if he wanted to turn him gay, he could literally just do it, right? (laughs) And again, warlock, I think we all know what that's code for. Yes, that episode did kind of read Magical Gay Uncle. It did! (laughs) Which uh, was fine. One morning, I shot a lion in my pajamas. Now, what he was doing in my pajamas... Cream, Darren? Uh, Yes, please. Help yourself. (laughs) Forgive me. I just can't help milking a joke. (laughs) I uh, really break you up, don't I? No, don't be a party poop. I had problems with the show. I didn't really enjoy it very much. I think Elizabeth Montgomery is... I like her, but I also found her character so lacking that I was very underwhelmed by this show. I really expected more from her, not necessarily as an actress, but just as a character. Hmm. She's like an all-powerful witch. Oh, she's a god. Yeah. (laughs) She can do anything. And all she wants to do is, like, be a housewife. Well, she loves Darren. <laughs> yeah, but she ha- she has no ambition. Like, you know, we talked about this just with Lucy, but at least Lucy, like, wanted something. And it seems like she doesn't want anything. Like, she's just like, let me chill with my husband. And I just found it kind of disappointing. There was just so little here. Like, I feel like the show needed maybe more characters or something. Like, there- it's really only Darren and Samantha and her mom. Chris, my overall note for Bewitched and... 
I Dream of Jeannie is that it's just wish fulfillment for straight white men who want, like, an omnipotent servant wife who can, like, you know, and, and, and also provide, like, wish fulfillment for white housewives to imagine that they're, like, supernaturally powerful, but also just still wishing to be nothing but bored housewives at the end of it. I have more to say about this when we talk about Jeannie. (laughs) Yeah. I share this sentiment about both of these series is that I completely agree with you, Chris. Like, I feel like really this is where the mark of age shows the most because the most that even these living human goddesses (laughs) want to do is be good housewives and be good to their husbands and make good things happen in their husbands' lives. And they really have no imaginations for themselves or what they want from their own lives. And, you know, you can only expect so much from a sitcom, but it made it very hard to watch that the only vision of, like, being a woman was so subservient, no matter how powerful that woman was. Yeah, I think I was surprised by how much this seems like it was from Darren's point of view. Yeah. It seems like the premise is like, my wife is a crazy witch and look at me like fighting with my mother-in-law. Yeah. Obviously having a mother-in-law who can literally like pop in and out all the time is like many men's like worst nightmare. Mm Mm-hmm. Which is, you know, kind of the funny part of the show. And I think the part that works the best is just their antagonism. But she's never really driving the show. It's always kind of like him and and the mom, like, fighting. And he's not even all that interesting. Like, honestly, the male character in that show, in both of those shows, is pretty much interchangeable to me. It could be any fucking man. (laughs) And the woman would still be 100% more interesting. But she's not really allowed to be all that interesting, because no matter how powerful she is, she's not allowed to be fully human. And I think that's the thing that impressed me so much about Mary Tyler Moore show, and depressed me so much about I Dream of Jeannie mm-hmm. and Bewitched, that they were so kind of less than human, even as powerful as they were. Yeah, I I totally see your point to- completely. I think that I'm just a little bit more charmed by this show. Oh. <laughs> You're more bewitched by it? <laughs> I'm bewitched by it because I think that Elizabeth Burke, uh, Elizabeth Berkeley. <laughs> <laughs> If only. If only. <laughs> Go back and listen to our Showgirls podcast, people. Be fucked. <laughs> because I am I like Elizabeth Montgomery and I I find the the cheesy um effects of her witchcraft to be very like they're fun and it works with the campy, you know, sitcom feel of the fifties. I was just thinking like what would a bewitched um sitcom look like today and the effects would be too good that it would just not it wouldn't hit in the same way like it's because it's so cheesy and the effects are bad that that it's it's charming to me wait was there a reboot of bewitched no there was a terrible terrible movie um, I think it was 2004 or 5 with Nicole Kidman and Will Ferrell that that's makes right. okay, absolutely that's no what sense I thought. yeah that's it, what I thought um yeah don't watch that um so so I totally get that and we're about to get into Genie and I have way more problems but they they do go back to Bewitched but I I, fu- I found it fun to watch this I think it's because I really liked it 
growing up and I was like, oh, nostalgia. Would I go back and watch all of Bewitched? Like I want to go back and watch all of Lucy? No. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, let's just go straight into I Dream of Jeannie on Jeannie Thursdays. I Dream of Jeannie originally premiered on NBC on September 18th, 1965. It ran for five seasons and 139 episodes. 30 of those were in black and white. It stars Barbara Eden as 2,000-year-old Jeannie, who is a genie. <laughs> Barbara Eden also played her twin sister Jeannie and her mother on the show. So she played a few different roles. Larry Hagman played astronaut Captain Tony Nelson. I Dream of Jeannie is about an astronaut named Tony Nelson whose ship crashes onto an island where he comes upon a magic bottle Inside is a Persian genie named Genie, who instantly falls in love with him and follows Tony back home to Florida, where he becomes her master and crazy hijinks ensue. So wait, you're saying there's a genie named Genie? Yeah. And they're kind of in a relationship, but kind of not. And she grants him wishes, but they're, oh, she gets in trouble. All of her wishes lead to something. Uh-oh. <laughs> Producer Sidney Sheldon could not find an actress who could play the role that he had written the way he had written it, but he knew that he didn't want a blonde. <laughs> he thought it would be too close to Bewitched, but then he couldn't find anybody and he's like, eh, let's get Barbara Eden. She's blonde. <laughs> well, <laughs> just a little bit of trivia. Jeannie's iconic bottle was not created for the show. It was actually a special Christmas 1964 Jim Beam liquor decanter. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to cast a blonde for the show. <laughs> the lead for the show is called Jeannie. Yeah. And also she's a genie in a bottle. In a whiskey bottle. <laughs> and this goes without saying, but the show was inspired by the success of Bewitched. <laughs> was it? Let's just talk about it. <laughs> okay. I, I want to. Okay. I'll start here. I was so taken aback at this show. <laughs> I had a lot of anger at I Dream of Jeannie. I hated it so much. It's like I heard what you said about Bewitched and I, and I, and I, you know, okay, I, I get that. And it was like <laughs> times 10 for I Dream of Jeannie. Mm -hmm. These shows are basically about powerful women who are controlled by boring white men to, <laughs> to not use their powers and to be subservient and boring so that they're not inconvenienced. <laughs> also to use their powers, to not only use their powers, but like develop new powers to help the mediocre white men in their fucking lives. Chris, you talked about earlier when you watched these shows and, you know, we're learning about previous generations of America and like previous generations of people and what culture was like back then. But I, I feel like a lot of these shows are talking about the history that's written by the winners. And a lot of these shows are about 
white men having power over the white women in their lives, you know, to different degrees and in different forms. But especially, I, I feel like, Becky, you're exactly right. Like, in terms of I Dream of Genie, it's to the exponential power, like, where the whole series is literally just about a white woman character literally serving the white man in a supernatural way <laughs> with a kind of magical bond. Yeah, so these episodes that we watched were uh, both from 1967, and the Bewitched episodes we watched were also, like, from the late 60s and 1970. And so to the degree that they reflect like what was going on in the country, it's like, it's really interesting because we all know that there was a lot going on in the country at that time, which is not Mm -hmm. really explicitly or even Mm -hmm. subtly like portrayed on this show. You know, there's nothing related to civil rights. There's nothing related to Vietnam. You know, these are very much escapist (laughs) shows. And so it's, yeah, you definitely see like, it's interesting that these shows end up being so much more regressive even than I Love Lucy, which was a full 15 years earlier. Uh, And you can really feel like them like almost like struggling to keep women in this place like it feels almost like aggressively like as a statement of like this is what women should be even though I don't Mm -hmm. obviously these shows were hits in a way and and people like them but I think there was a lot else going on in the culture where you know women were not behaving like this you know women were increasingly like wanting to not just be housewives and not just be subservient to men and you know well that's why I think it is definitely a reaction because people were scared Mm -hmm. of women and what and what happened is we're scared of women, so let's have shows where there are pow- powerful women, and we won't respect that power. And and what they really want is to be housewives. That's what they really want. Yeah, literally putting women in a bottle. <laughs> yeah, yeah, literally, literally. Yeah, I think I think it it's like Bewitched touches on these things that are a little like a little problematic, and then Jeannie's just like she's wearing one outfit, and it's basically <laughs> lingerie, and she calls him master. She calls him master. That's what did it for me. The bottle's on the nose enough. (laughs) But literally calling him master? Ooh, that hits different. Yeah, I thought that their relationship would develop more over the seasons. (laughs) You would think. You really would think. (laughs) I actually, I went back and watched the pilot to this show, too, just to, as a, like, a jumping off point, because I was kind of curious. I did that with Verbi Witched as well. And yeah, I mean, she starts off very much like this character. And I was like, okay, like, when is she going to, you know, kind of pick up more things about the modern world and, you know, maybe wear different outfits sometimes? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it doesn't really happen. I mean, may, I don't think it really happens later in the show either, even though we didn't watch, obviously, every episode or stuff from the later seasons. I, however, found this less problematic than Bewitched. Oh. Because it gives it a reason, at least. Like, she is a genie. And the fact that that is, like, kind of her identity and her job made it, for me, like, it made sense that her character would want to be subservient, like, And yes, I would have enjoyed it more if like it had explored that and challenged that a little bit, but at least that was built into the show. And also like it almost kind of works as a parody of female domesticity and like subservience. Like that's maybe giving the show a little too much credit, but I think that's way too much credit, but like I can at least see it in there. It's validating it. Yeah. I don't, I don't, it's not undermining it. It's validating. I I feel that too. I, 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 I respectfully disagree. 
<laughs> because it could just be a job technically for her like oh you you want wishes I'll grant you wishes it's the fact that she like immediately falls in love with him she doesn't even know him it's not like their love develops yeah. where she's like oh I think I have feelings for this person I work for well but also with the power differential because like she literally is supernaturally obligated to him whereas like Samantha is just the wife of the guy <laughs> At least they you got know, married so before like, he knew that she was a witch. Exactly. Like, at least there was like they're on equal footing there. Well, she has the power, and she sublimates her power to him, and she uses her power to help her husband. Whereas in I Dream of Jeannie, she's a fucking slave to him. She calls him master. But that's what made it work for me more is that like it was mm. so blatant that I would like I just oh. appreciated it like and that it's built into the show like in Bewitched I'm like why is she with this guy like why is she choosing to not do whatever else she could be doing at least here it's like that is her role like she is a genie she is meant to serve him look I've never hooked up with an astronaut <laughs> so I really can't speak from experience here <laughs> We don't know. We don't know what we don't know here, Chris. Okay. <laughs> I mean, can we talk about the appropriation as well? Can we? Like the cultural. <laughs> can we talk about that? The whole genie thing. <laughs> the fact that she's supposed to be Persian. Is Barbara Eden not Persian? No, I don't think she is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, she's not that blonde woman. Yeah. It's not great. <laughs> <laughs> I got nothing really like positive to say. I really I wanted to find more subversive humor in this, but yeah, it it did bother me less than Bewitched just because mm. there's more of like the element of choice there and so I'm I'm more confused about why she stays with him, but they both felt very regressive to the female characters and just like were basically about like I'm a guy, I want my job to go well. Oh no, women is acting crazy. <laughs> Women is acting crazy. <laughs> also, wouldn't it have made more sense to for an ordinary more a more ordinary like office worker to find this genie and then he's like really into it? Like, oh my god, I have a genie. It's like more wish fulfillment versus a very successful white astronaut gets a genie. It's like, oh, I guess I'll <laughs> keep being successful. That's not much of a bump. <laughs> Yeah, I was like, well, that was a missed opportunity to, like, actually have... <laughs> That's not Whoa. a huge step up when you're already a NASA astronaut. Because then Come at least on. the guy would be, like, into his wife having these powers and then going on adventures kind of together. But it always feels like Tony Nelson is like, no, Genie, what are you doing? He, like, always wants her to not be a Genie. And, like, there's an episode we watched where yeah. he finds out that if he marries her, then she won't be a Genie anymore. And so he rushes over to her and she's like, we're getting married. Doesn't propose but just says we're getting it's married. It's so fucked up. I particularly hated that episode because again, it's like the genie does nothing but use her powers to help him. And the one thing he wants to do is deprive her of her fucking powers in this circumstance. Like the moment he finds out that he has a way that he could disempower her, he wants to take it immediately. Yeah, it really turned me off. Yeah, that episode was weird. And it just raises a lot of questions. Like she's a genie, but she's not like granting wishes. She's actually like going against him. She's more. a witch. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> She's a witch. The rules of both of their like powers don't make sense. Because there's like in the Bewitched one, like there's a time when they're like, oh, we need to go pick up those desserts from that restaurant. And you're like, I'm like, just wiggle your nose and put them there. Like, like they have to go on this errand and find a babysitter. I'm like, but you don't have to. You're only doing that for the plot. So I don't know. When you have characters who are this powerful and can make anything happen, I mean it kind of limits how interesting your stories can be because yeah, they, they need, can solve they, any problem. 
there's an episode of Bewitched where she turns back time. And I'm like, you are a god. <laughs> there's no <laughs> limit to your powers. <laughs> and I, I feel like these are the shows that like a lot of kids like because they have magic stuff. So, you know, they were definitely like True. ones I gravitated towards. So people That's are very fair. fond yeah. of them. But yeah, I guess we're agreeing that they don't hold up so well. <laughs> All right, it's the end of the week. Woohoo! We are on Friday already. <laughs> it seems like it's only been a couple hours to get through this week. And uh, it's Sergeant Joe Fridays, everyone. Bah, 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 bah. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, the story you are about to see is true. The names have been changed to protect the innocent. Dragnet premiered on NBC on December 15th, 1951, running for eight seasons and a total of 276 episodes. Holy until shit! Until its cancellation in 1959, which was followed by a revival in 1967 that lasted for four more seasons and produced 98 more episodes. Oh my god. Oh my god. That's a lot of Dragnet. That's so many episodes a season, again. Bonkers, yeah. Uh, The show is based on a radio play created by Jack Webb, who also stars in the show as Sergeant Joe Friday, a no-nonsense LAPD cop who cops it up doing cop things like talking tough and throwing the book (laughs) at bad guys. Jack Webb also directed every episode, which has a ripped-from-the-headlines true story gimmick, prefaced by, Ladies and gentlemen, the story you are about to hear is true, only the names have been changed to protect the innocent. His name is not Officer Dragnet, as I would have uh, assumed, because I had never seen the show. (laughs) Apparently, a dragnet is a system of coordinated measures for apprehending criminals or suspects, including road barricades and traffic stops, or widespread DNA tests. So, there you go. That's some trivia for you. Hmm. Did we watch a couple episodes? We watched at least one. <laughs> I watched I, two. I watched at Did least we? one. Okay. The very least. <laughs> I watched up to one and a half. Okay, so we watched The Big Producer, which was season four, episode one. It aired yes. in 1954. Uh, what did you guys think of Dragnet? <laughs> I, I will share my entire notes while watching this episode. Are you ready? Boy, I hate this. Feels like such a parody of itself. I'm falling asleep. The end. Wait, did you write the end? I didn't write the end, but... Okay, okay, (laughs) okay. I never watched this show before because it was not a comedy, and I was all about the comedies when I was young, and I never want to watch it again. It was bad. It was bad. It was so boring. There's my review. Seth. Once again, this show was my mash. It was the show that would come on after every show that I actually wanted to watch. And it was my cue to turn the channel or turn the TV off and go to bed. That has not changed. (laughs) The one full episode that I watched, season four, episode one, The Big Producer, is an episode about someone making porn to distribute to local high schoolers. I could not make it through the entirety of that. I tried to watch the episode from the reboot series about LSD. Also could not make it through that. 
Again, I feel fully justified in my initial judgments about the series, and it's definitely groundbreaking in the sense of making way for a lot of the conventions of the procedural TV crime dramas that exist now, but it's very boring. So this is kind of like a film noir fast-forwarded. Yeah. It goes very quickly. <laughs> for sure. He talks so fast. So fast. Yeah, that's why it feels like a parody. Yeah. He's like basically like like a film noir detective like doing the monologue, but it's really only like the facts. So it's like a film noir with like all the like sexy stuff cut out, like no like fun femme fatales or anything like that. And it's just like, we went here, we're going here, we're doing this, we're getting this, we got this It clue. feels like a radio play. Yeah. It feels like a radio play. Like Chris, what you said about the history of it totally checks out. It exactly feels like how much you would condense a story for a radio play. Yeah, and it doesn't really, like, I don't think it benefits from any visuals, really. Mm -mm. So this episode was interesting because it has that beginning and it's speeding through this stuff. And for one, I was just like, do the cops have time for this? Like, they're going to high school and searching his locker. (laughs) The thing is that there's, you know, like a porn magazine in a locker. I'm like, is this really what the police were doing in the 50s? Yeah, probably. Yeah. But then it does take a weird turn and has this, like, very John Waters-esque <laughs> Hollywood director. The pencil mustache. In a pencil mustache and sunglasses that he does not take off until the very end of the episode. <laughs> and he takes them back to, like, his the set of one of his old movies. Mm-hmm. And there's basically an invisible movie that plays. And he just, like, narrates what was happening in the movie. And we're just, like, watching, like, empty scenes. It is so weird. Saturday night. The town was wide open, going full blast. Over in the Palace Hotel, they were betting 10 to 1 that Clyde would never make it. And right across the street there in the Silver Dollar, Kelsey's gang was setting up drinks on the house. They felt that sure of themselves. The town was swarming with people. And I was standing right there with Connie, the director, right behind the camera. Right next to us, we had the orchestra. You know, three pieces. We had to have the orchestra to get the actors in the mood. I see. Yes, sir. There it was, all ready to go. A thousand extras. It was all set. The big scene. Connie gave the sign to the orchestra. That's it, boys. Keep it bright. Connie looked around just to check once more to see that everything was all right. And he picked up the megaphone. All right, everybody. Place it, everybody. All right. Camera. Action. Honestly, that's when I started to check out because it was just very, it was almost psychedelic because he was describing a movie that we were not watching and it just <laughs> went on for like seven or eight minutes. Yeah. And Guys, it, my eyes glazed over. I really <laughs> couldn't follow. It was, I mean, it was not good. It was bonkers, but I also, I found it so weird that this was what this episode was, was like this basically like Norma Desmond from Sunset Boulevard, but like a male version <laughs> And if she had decided to distribute porn to children. (laughs) Norman Desmond. (laughs) Yeah, it was uh, super weird. And then I did watch the LSD episode as well, which was more entertaining, definitely more modern than that. My hair is green and I'm a tree. You ever see anybody this torn up? Well, it's a sense he's not strung out on sugar cubes. Yeah. All right. Let's take him to central receiving. Come on, son. Even if your body does die, your mind will live on. Yeah, we know. Come on. The dirty disbelievers. The evil disbelievers. 
Evil! 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 Right, come on, son. Settle down. Brown, blue, yellow, green, green, orange, red, 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 red. I can hear them. I can hear them all. Yeah, sure you can. I watched a few minutes and I was like, I, I'm good. <laughs> Very different vibe from the first one, you know, the black and white one. Yeah, still not. Right there with yeah. Becky. <laughs> yeah, the episode's all about LSD, but it's just so funny because they're like, an LSD use could like lead to them using marijuana as if that's <laughs> the properly like dangerous step is first you do the LSD and then you do the marijuana. Yeah, that's the gateway. Yeah, I only watched a few minutes of that and then switched it off. What struck me about this, especially lately, is like how much of the bones of this are still in our police procedurals. Um, this is an obvious ancestor to Law and Order with all the like true things ripped from the headlines, like in the in the story. Um, here, like the cops are definitely like the heroes. The criminals are always wrong. Every episode ended with the criminal being found guilty in court. There was never mm-hmm. like you know, a wrongly accused person or anything like that. So, well, I, I think that's the thing that remains now. I think that is one of the biggest tropes of all the modern police procedurals, all of the NCIS, all of the federal ones too. Like they're all inherently pro police and pro cop and like pro on the side of law enforcement. And this really feels like the roots of that. Yeah. It starts to feel like propaganda. It's like, it's not even that it's pro, but it's just that it's like not questioning it at all, you know, and yes, just the assumption that everything he does is right. And, you know, as presented here, you know, it pretty much is, but just there's no like really like looking into like the criminals or supposed criminals and, you know, like finding motivations. It's just like, these are bad people who deserve to be punished. Exactly. And also there are no crimes that he's not going to solve. Like it's, it's literally like it's telling you a police officer is a person who solves crime a hundred percent of the time. Yeah. It is absolutely propaganda. Like, it really is. And it's really kind of impressive how that has stayed basically forever, even up to now. Especially now in terms of the procedurals that are around. Copaganda. <laughs> Copaganda. Like no it. one is immune. All right. Fuck you, Dragnet. <laughs> <laughs> you don't get much of our time. Finally, we've come to the last show that we're going to be talking about this episode it is cotter fridays right that's what it was called cotter fridays mm-hmm. <laughs> katia fridays <laughs> katia. jesus that was rough <laughs> welcome back your dreams for your ticket out welcome back same old place that you laughed about Well the names have all changed since you hung around But those dreams have remained and they've turned around Who'd have thought they'd need ya? Who'd have thought they'd need ya? Here where we need ya Here where we need ya Yeah we tease him a lot Cause we got him on the spot Welcome back Welcome back.
Welcome Back Cotter is about a teacher named Gabe Cotter who returns to his former Bensonhurst High School to teach a class of remedial students not so affectionately nicknamed the Sweat Hogs. And it happens to be a group that Cotter himself used to be a part of. Welcome Back Cotter premiered on ABC on September 9th, 1975. It stars Gabe Kaplan as Mr. Cotter, John Travolta as Vinnie Barbarino, Ron Palillo as Horshack, Lawrence Hilton Jacobs as Washington, and Robert Hedges as Epstein. The show ran for four seasons and 95 episodes. Welcome Back Cotter's first season was quite controversial. In Boston, the ABC affiliate WCVB-TV originally refused to air the show. It was going through a tumultuous school busing program that involved widespread protests and riots. And the affiliate thought that Cotter's fictional integrated classroom would make the situation worse. Yikes. (laughs) God, that was only 1975, man. Yeah. The show was actually like quite a hit, didn't really get too many award recognitions, um, but the ratings slipped in the third season, likely in part because the cast no longer resembled anything like high school students. (laughs) 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 The entire writing staff was fired and replaced with writers from that had experience on family based shows like The Munsters and Leave It to Beaver. Huh. Wow. Travolta was finding major success in films. Only three years after breaking out on Welcome Back, Cotter, he would star in Saturday Night Fever and get an Academy Award nomination for Best Actor. And also, like, Grease happened, and, you know, he was definitely, like, big news back then. He started, you know, not being in episodes, and he became a guest star at some point instead of a main cast member. Um, And also, off-screen disputes led Gabe Kaplan to break his contract and appear in less episodes. So it seems like very quickly this show spiraled out of control. (laughs) So what would you guys think of Welcome Back, Cotter? I had never, ever seen this show before. I think a lot of these shows, like Mary Tyler Moore, like just felt more adult to me when I was probably about 11 and watching Lucy and Jeannie and Bewitched. So I definitely stayed away from the shows that felt more 70s, I guess. Like, Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, totally. And more adult. Like something about this show just didn't appeal to me, even though like I guess it's a high school show. Like. Some something about it maybe should have appealed to me, but didn't. Um, this is a weird show. Like I didn't know what to make of this show. <laughs> <It's> so weird. <laughs> like it's just really weird. There are a lot of moments in the show that just like go into like dramatic monologue, and it's usually Cotter himself that's that's doing the monologue. I had not watched a minute of this show before preparing for this episode. Is Welcome Back Cotter a spinoff of another show? No, it's not. Yeah, I don't think so. It's not? No, there was a spinoff after with Horshack, but no, this is not a But I know why you're saying that. It's because it it seems to assume, (laughs) because we watched the pilot. We're coming into this supposedly cold. We're coming in cold. (laughs) We're coming in cold. (laughs) And yet, like, it seems like built on this familiarity we have with (laughs) Cotter, especially, like, as if we've been following him. Like, it feels like maybe like a series adaptation after like a movie or something like that. The biggest note I had for Welcome Back, Cotter, was like the way that the episodes are written and the way that the audience laugh track goes. It seems like every other line of dialogue in the whole show, in all the episodes I watched, is like a famous catchphrase that everybody knew and like everyone is known forever. I didn't know if characters were in other shows and are just like crossing over here. It was baffling to me. It was very disorienting. Okay, Barbarino, let's see how much talent you got. You're asking for it, Connor. <laughs> You're right, I'm asking for it. 
up your nose with a rubber hose. <laughs> Washington, go to the blackboard, write that down in the 1975. Another one, Barbarino. I heard you had an idea once, but it died of loneliness. <laughs> Come on, Barbarino. That the best you can do? Hey, off my case, toilet face. <laughs> So I did watch the show as part of Nick at Night, but it wasn't super regular. I only watched it like a few times. So I was vaguely familiar with like Horseshack and Cotter and John Travolta. I think that like Nick at Night to me was like Mr. Ed, Donna Reed, like old, like old sitcoms. Like that was the vibe for me. So when they started airing like Mary Tyler Moore or something from the 70s, like I wasn't into that because it was just so stylistically different. But what I wanted was like the suburban, you know, like family sitcom, which is what these weren't. Mm. It just it didn't appeal to me. Like it wasn't Nick at Night to me. Yeah, that's that's interesting, Becky, because Welcome Back, Cotter is definitely like a city sitcom like Mary Tyler Moore show is. You know, they both feel so New York specific and they just don't feel like suburban sitcoms at all. Yeah, I think it was just a vibe. Like, I wanted the suburban family, you know, uh, hijinks. Huh. Okay. Yeah. Or, you know, or a relationship with between, like, you know, Jeannie and, and Tony or whatever. But it just didn't appeal to me. Like, things in the... I think that the movies in the 70s were very good and the TV was bad. <laughs> <laughs> Becky, I actually totally agree with that very generalized assessment. <laughs> <laughs> Because, like, what other shows in the 70s, like tax, Taxi? Or was that early right. 80s? Like, that was late 70s. Funny enough, I expected that Welcome Back, Cotter was a spinoff of Taxi somehow. <laughs> it's not. I did zero <laughs> research not. on this show before. So, <laughs> But, Becky, I line up with you there. Like, 70s TV, not so great. 70s film, amazing. Yeah. The show was weird. Like, there were some moments that I liked. And then there were some where I'm like, I, I don't care for this. <laughs> I, di- I didn't like the guy who played Mr. Cotter. I thought he was really stiff. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Yeah, so, I mean, I so he was a comedian. So oh. I think any familiarity with him was probably from that. So what this reminded me of a lot was Seinfeld, where you have this kind of lead who feels like he's breaking the fourth wall a lot and kind of mostly just like doing his shtick for the audience. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But without the rest of the cast. I mean, there's other characters here, but it felt like a weird like mashup of like Seinfeld in Saved by the Bell or something like that. <laughs> well, and also it doesn't come with the conceit of cutting away to clips of the stand comedian actually doing stand-up comedy in front of an audience which Seinfeld does yeah in Seinfeld at least he was like playing more of a version of himself and here I mean exactly this is a version of himself as well because he's also from Brooklyn and so I think part of it is autobiographical I didn't know he was a professional comedian at all so like that totally explains that yeah apparently he was on like Johnny Carson a lot so people would have seen him you know there but like that still seems to assume like a little bit more familiarity than it seems like it should to me this felt like I couldn't get the feeling that this was like 
an SNL sketch out of my head. Like <laughs> Truly, production-wise. It had that kind of production value. The studio audience is super loud, like, hmm. like ridiculously loud, like to a distracting degree. Like they are like cracking up at everything. And it's like ongoing. It's not like they're laughing at jokes. It feels like they're like laughing throughout the, the episode. Like it was just really jarring to me. It's like a cheap sitcom. So it just, it feels weird. I, I'm interested in what you guys are saying about the 70s because I, I felt that too is that something about like being a 90s kid like I really like rejected the 70s and that <laughs> whole aesthetic like I rejected mm-hmm. Mary Tyler Moore I rejected Welcome Back Cotter we rejected MASH um, like something <laughs> oh, about MASH, that yeah <laughs> <laughs> the the color palette like was like offensive to us like that the greens and the browns i don't know yeah. i i love it in movies i love it in movies like i truly do it's my that's my favorite decade of cinema like ever yeah there's great great but 70s in TV? films mm. like but, what else was in the 70s like mod <laughs> <laughs> yeah but to yeah. stick up maybe for the 70s i'm speaking a little bit without having oh, ha- you know done a lot of days. research but, like, I also think there's something kind of dangerous about the 70s that was, like, not comforting because there was so much, like, social change going on. And so, like, I do want to admire this show for having, like, you know, different people of, like, showing lower class people, showing people of different ethnicities. Um, oh, but come on. Like, every episode of Welcome Back, Connor was a very special episode. This was, like, the epitome of representation over any kind of, like, critical perspective on what society was going through. Like, this was literally, like, the stereotypical sitcom. But, like, now we have non-white characters, and now we have female characters who are going through difficult situations. <laughs> it just felt very pat and stereotypical, even though it was probably very new at the time for any kind of sitcom to be talking about these issues. We watched also an episode called The Return of Hotsi Totsi, which is from season three. Mm. And this was the show that I noticed the most like difference in watching like a season one episode and a season three episode. There was a lot that felt the same, but it also, like, I feel like, I would need to see more of this show to really understand if I even think it's good because there were things I liked about, especially like the second episode we watched, like there was kind of a touching interaction between Horshack and Hotsi Totsi, who basically was a character who was in the show in season one as one of the sweat hogs. She was like the female one and at some point like left the show. And so this was her return and she's a stripper the most overdressed stripper ever. I uh, know. <laughs> she's wearing, she's wearing a like a, Yeah, she's wearing something that you could just take the cowboy hat off and you could like wear it to the office today. <laughs> she's a fully clothed and accessorized stripper. <laughs> but also, it's like she wasn't just a sweat hog. She was the stereotypical character of the high school slut in the first season. And... Again, it's like, not having watched this show, I can't say with certainty, but I'm not sure that they approached it in a very sex-positive way. And Hatsi Tatsi comes back in the third season, and, like, the plot of it is she dropped out of school because she became pregnant and had to become a stripper to support her infant child. It's another episode that is touching in theory, but in presentation, it just feels very surface level and presentational and very special episode-y rather than really organic to what's going on in the story. I don't know. I mean, I, I 
I liked this episode. Like I said, I don't know how much I like this show, and it's hard to tell because in this episode, I really only like Hotsi Tatsi. <laughs> and she's like, a get, you know, she's returning from the first season. So I'm like, I don't know if I would like this show without her because I hate most of the Sweat Hogs. They are yeah. obnoxious. They, they don't really have individual personalities. Like they're just, they're being mean yeah. to her. And it's like, it's not very funny, like, especially from now. Can we talk about Horshack? Yes. Guys, I'm trying to do the Horshack laugh, and I don't remember how to do it. <laughs> no! <laughs> Haunted by Horshack. <laughs> Trivia, he based that laugh off of the coughs of his dying father. <laughs> is that real? That is the opposite of a fun fact. <laughs> I think I read that on Wikipedia, so yeah. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Yeah, does he have Asperger's? Like, is that what is Horshack? <laughs> okay, the Horshack is definitely autistic. Yeah, right. Horshack is definitely autistic. They don't talk about it in the show, right? They don't ever say it. It doesn't seem like they ever say it. And he's just like kind of their punching bag, right? Yeah, like he's only part of their little foursome group because they make fun of him, right? Like they don't really like him. Horshack <laughs> doesn't talk. He talks when I tell him to talk. That's so, Horshack, you need him to tell you to talk? You say nothing on your own volition? Tell him to talk. Talk, Horshack. Hello. How are you? I'm Arnold Horshack. Arnold Horshack. Arnold Horshack, the last. Why the last, Horshack? Because uh, after they made me, they broke the mold. I think that there's a, there was a big like rewrite of Horshack done between the first episode we watched and the one from season three. Because in the first one, it seems like, he, for one, it's that's what's so weird is like it seems like the studio audience loves him and that they, the whole show basically stops to be like, here's Horshack. And we're like, It okay. seems like they already loved him for a long time before <laughs> this show started. <laughs> it's so weird because like there's, there's like long pauses and then he just does something that's like, Maybe moderately amusing, but it's not, like, laugh-out-loud hilarious. <laughs> and it seems like it's, like, guest star, like, Jim Carrey or something. Like, someone that we would recognize. <laughs> it seems like half the audience died laughing just now. And they caught it on tape. And, and he almost seems like the coolest character, to me, at least in the pilot, is, like, he seems like... Like, there was a whole thing about, like, he only talks if, like... John Travolta tells him to talk. Like, I don't know. He seemed like very cool. And then in this third season episode, he was like the most sensitive one. And I actually really liked his character. And he was, yeah, the only other one that I was kind of interested in when the other guys were all like lame jerks. Is it just me or do the students look older than the teacher? <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. Even or above, <laughs> like same age or older. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Very strange casting. Um, what a weird show. It was very loud and obnoxious. <laughs> and I don't care to watch more. <laughs> yeah, honestly, I, here's what I realized. I don't like Cotter. I don't wish to welcome him back or <laughs> into my home for the first time. <laughs>
I would watch a couple more episodes of the show just to like feel like I got a better handle on it. Like I feel like two episodes was not sufficient to like really understand the show, even if maybe two more episodes would confirm that I don't like it. Like that seems mm-hmm. very possible. <laughs> but like I'm I'm intrigued enough by what I saw that I'm like I could watch more just to see what happens from here. Well, I'll be watching Lucy while you watch Welcome Back Cotter. I mean, I'll also be watching Lucy. It's my comfort food. Yeah, it's going to be Lucy and MTM for me. I uh, I didn't mention yet that I was watching some of the Lucy for this episode, and I had it paused, and then my daughter figured out how to unpause things, so that's <gasps> that's own issue. But she was watching Lucy, and she was laughing. She's two <laughs> years old, and she was laughing at Lucy. And I was like, I will that's happily great. watch I Love Lucy with you. My daughter, she, she's two years old, born in 2018, and and can still laugh at Lucille Ball. I think that confirms my theory that Lucille Ball is <laughs> timeless. She is a goddess. And you all can borrow my DVDs because I own every episode of I Love Lucy. <laughs> Will do. So I just wanted to mention some of the other shows that have aired on Nick at Night. Are you sitting down? <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> I'm ready. <laughs> Am I ready? Gilligan's Island, Taxi, Three's Company, Mork and Mindy, The Andy Griffith Show, My Three Sons, The Beverly Hillbillies, The Cosby Show, Lassie, Different Strokes, Perfect Strangers, Flipper, Get Smart, Green Acres, Happy Days, The Jeffersons, The Wonder Years, Laverne and Shirley, The Brady Bunch, The Partridge Family, Alfred Hitchcock Presents, and Mr. Ed are a partial list. I watched 75% of that. Wow. For sure. Yeah. I, f- I for- completely forgot about like Get Smart. I love Get Smart. Yeah, I didn't watch yeah. that many of those. I was like pretty much like stuck on my Lucy Tuesdays. Like I've definitely seen Get Smart, like in Green Acres. I saw some of those, but I, I don't know. Not necessarily during Nick at Night. There was a point in time where we all must have stopped watching Nick at Night, probably sometime in high school or like in college. I don't think we had cable in college. At least I didn't. I remember, though, it had been many years. And then I saw the programming that was on Nick at Night and it was like cheers. And I started like crying because <laughs> I was like, oh, my God, I'm oh. old. I'm old if cheers is on Nick at Night. Yeah, that is the equivalent of hearing uh, pop hits of your youth on the oldie stations now. Yeah, it really bothered Mm -hmm. me. (laughs) Guys, do you want to know what's on Nick at Night this week? No, I don't. Is it it The Office? (laughs) (laughs) 30 Rock, Parks and Rec. It's worse. What is it? So this Tuesday's schedule is Five Hours of Friends. (laughs) (laughs) Two Hours of Mom. Excuse me? <gasps> mom? Isn't mom still on TV? Isn't mom airing new episodes? I think so. Oh my God. An hour and a half of George Lopez, an episode of Full House, and then SpongeBob SquarePants. <sighs> and that's the schedule. That's the entire schedule. That's all that airs all week. <laughs> wow. I mean, it's a different world, though. Pro- programming now, <laughs> there's, there's no it's programming a blocks. World. Yeah, I mean, I I actually used to work in programming a few years ago, but like programming was, it's still important, but it was much more important back in the day when you could have like TGIF or Mussy TV, you know, and people are actually tuning into live television. But now, like, if you can watch anything you want at any point, like, there's no point in trying that hard (laughs) for programming. 
And there's less curation. Again, now it's more about feeding the content trough. (laughs) Yeah. You know, than anything else. Yeah. Um, That's kind of sad, I guess, but it's just what the world is now. Mm -hmm. So it's not surprising. Yeah. 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 Nick Nick at Night, you know, just the name is just like, you know, Nickelodeon at Night. But in my brain, it's always going to be like you know, Green Acres and Bewitched and those kinds of shows like that in my brain equals Nick at Night. Yeah, I'll forever be grateful that it introduced me to I Love Lucy because I don't know how long it would have taken me to see like a lot of I Love Lucy otherwise, you know, like there wasn't an opportunity and who knows when I would have taken that upon myself, you know, to like dig up I Love Lucy if I hadn't been, you know, served it up on this delicious Lucy Lucy Tuesday platter. (laughs) Do you think the Zoomers are watching I Love Lucy somehow? It's on Hulu. Is it on TikTok? (laughs) (laughs) She should have her own TikTok. It would totally work. I feel like it would work. I think she's one of those iconic actresses and it's an iconic show that there'll always be some sort of lunchbox or, you know, it's like Marilyn Monroe where it's it's going to be a very, very, very long time until there's not somebody that kind of idolizes them no matter what the decade is. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, did you say Marilyn Munster? <laughs> <laughs> it sounded almost Cajun. Marilyn Monroe. <laughs> But you know what I mean. Like, she's just so classic and so, you know, timeless that... She's an icon of comedy. Yeah. All right, guys. So Lucy's dress from the Lucy Does a TV commercial episode is in Laura Dern's closet. (gasps) (laughs) Did she wear it for a Halloween? I don't think she did. (laughs) Why not? But if I needed more reasons to want to go to Laura Dern's house, (laughs) now I have even more of a reason. Wow, I didn't know that. She's got to dress up as her. There are so many things I look forward to after this lockdown life lifts. But perhaps number one is going to Laura Dern's house. Breaking into Laura Dern's house, that's your... (laughs) Either way, any way I get in. How did Laura Dern get into our Nick at Night podcast? How are we ending with Laura Dern? (laughs) Laura Dern belongs in everything. I have a closing question for us, which is... Oh, which Nick at Night hubby is your chosen hubby? Hubby. <laughs> your options are Darren Stevens, Herman Munster, Gabe Cotter, Major Tony Nelson, and Ricky Ricardo. Ricky. Ricky, huh? Out of that collection, Ricky. Seth? Out of that absolutely motley crew, it's going to be Ricky. <laughs> it would otherwise be Paul Lind, let's be honest with ourselves. <laughs> yeah, are you kidding me? <laughs> but, but also Ricky. <laughs> All right. I'm going to go with Major Tony Nelson. I was into Tony Nelson. You just want a master. Not really. Well, I guess maybe <laughs> if I have the power of like blinking <laughs> chaos into his life, then maybe that works. You've never been a big blinker, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what that means. <laughs> And that's all the Vitamita Vegemin we have time for on this episode of When We Were Young on our next episode. Man, there's like this global system of interconnected computer networks. It's it's like, it's going to blow your mind. Uh, We're going to be talking about two 90s thrillers that use the newfangled concept of the World Wide Web as a jumping off point for conspiracy and danger. The movies are Hackers with Angelina Jolie and The Net starring Sandra Bullock. Wow. (laughs) Can't wait. (laughs) I can't wait to click on that. 
The When We Were Young podcast is a production of the MFP Studio Studio in Los Angeles, California. If you've enjoyed this, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or anywhere you get your podcast product. You can also follow us on all the social medias and contribute to us on Patreon at patreon.com slash when we were young. I've been Seth. I'm Becky. And I'm enjoying a tasty, smooth Philip Morris cigarette. America's favorite cigarette. I I want a cut of that money. (laughs) I want a cut of that money. This is a Ricky Ricardo production. (laughs) Bum, ba, ba, bum, bum, bum.